Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have sent your spirit to be with us today in the songs and in the words we've heard. Now, Lord, bring a conviction to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sabbath, we started what will be for us really kind of a brief fall series entitled Fresh Wind. Usually our fall series is quite a bit longer, but we've had a lot of things going on this fall, so it's a little bit shorter. But Pastor Bernie and myself are both preaching uh, a series of sermons that we're calling Fresh Wind out of the book of Acts, considering various stories where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon people like you and like me. Normal people. I hope that's not saying too much when I point at myself, but people like us. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and then asking ourselves the question, what impact did the coming of the Spirit have? Now, most weeks I would encourage you to go and listen to the comments of Pastor Bernie, but I spoke at the bridge today, so this week you don't have to do that. But you're going to want to hear what he's saying as well on these subjects. But in addition, I also want to remind you of how we ended last Sabbath. We ended with a question, what would I become if the Holy Spirit fell on me. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why did God send the Holy Spirit when Jesus returned to the Father? Did the Spirit come just to amuse us? To maybe be a a really good feeling that we might have sometimes, maybe, maybe in worship or in another context? Is it just a feeling? Or is the Holy Spirit a trinket or a toy? Uh, not, notwithstanding uh, Clayton's attempted illustration this morning, it actually did work really well at first service. He really scooted all the way across here really well. But, uh, but the point he's trying to make there is that the Spirit enables us But to what purpose? Is the Holy Spirit just a spiritual badge that I wear to show you what an advanced Christian I am and how you should try to be more like me? Or is there supposed to be more? You will receive power. Yes, but what kind of power and why? What I suggested to you last week and hope to build upon today is the idea that God sent the Holy Spirit primarily in order to transform normal humans into witnesses, enabling us to testify in word or in deed or in any other means available that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and all who put their trust in Jesus will be saved. And with this in mind, let's get right to the story today, a story of a most remarkable witness, a believer who still to this day sets the standard for faithfulness. We begin the story in Acts chapter 6, and interestingly, this story finds its beginning within another story where, believe it or not, friction has developed between believers in the early church. Aren't you glad that we never have friction between believers in church anymore? Yeah, no, that didn't go away, did it? 
Acts chapter 6 verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now understand the context. The church is succeeding. This didn't happen in a time when the church was failing. The church is succeeding. They've grown from a remnant group of about 120 to 3,000 and then now to 5,000. But maybe you've learned this lesson. With success comes complications. You just can't operate a community of 5,000 the same way you operate a community of 120. And not only was the community larger now, it was also beginning to become multicultural, though at this point still only multicultural Jewish. But what does that even mean, multicultural Jewish? Well, Luke essentially lays out what he means in the passage, but since we're not from that time, it can be easy for us to miss important points. So I'm going to read it to you again. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You see, there were, at this point, two kinds of Jews who were becoming Christians, Hellenistic and Hebraic. Well, what was the difference? Well, Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking Jews who had adapted themselves in many ways to Greek and Roman culture. If they were alive today, this is the group that would refer to themselves as relevant believers. They'd adapted to the culture. Hebraic Jews, on the other hand, were Aramaic-speaking. That was actually the language that was spoken commonly at the time, as opposed to Hebrew. But they were Aramaic-speaking Jews who had not adapted nor adopted Greek culture and language. And were they with us today? They would be likely to refer to themselves as faithful believers. You've heard that argument before, right? Relevance. Faithfulness. Nice to know that goes all the way back to the beginning, right? And in an environment of predisposition to conflict, it isn't surprising that trouble between these two groups arose. We aren't told exactly if this charge was true, that one group was in fact being shortchanged, only that the allegation was made and was significant enough that something needed to be done. And the response, verse 2, chapter 6. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, there's a lot we could say about this, but we must resist the urge to do so today because this message isn't specifically about church order or governance or roles. However, I do want you to notice what the 12 said would be essential traits in the men they were to choose. They must be men known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So one of the obvious points we can take from that is that Obviously, the outpouring of the Spirit wasn't just for the twelve, was it? Because if they were to choose others in the body who were also full of the Spirit, that means that God indeed did intend to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. 
We go on, for we're about to meet the witness. That's the title of our message today. Verse verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So what was the result of this action? Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. All right, just a quick aside. The church will always reach points in its development when growth will suddenly become restrained by the very structures that once enabled it to grow. And it is at such moments that the people of God must act to remove restraints so that the Word of God can spread freely again. But now I want to go a little deeper with this. In practically every case you will read about in the Bible, the answer to stuckness, when the church reaches its ability, where it has difficulty growing anymore, the answer to stuckness is almost never an increased centralization of authority, despite all the seeming strengths. I mean, if we just, if we just pulled it all together, we'd have clarity, we'd have order, we'd have unity. But that never seems to be the answer. Rather, it seems in the Bible story that it is a decentralization of authority that frees things up because that is what allows the Holy Spirit to take the lead again. And if the 12 had been unwilling to share their authority, the hero of our story for today might never have arisen, and the church might have stalled out forever over the problem of equal meals for widows and never gotten any bigger. But back to the story. There is something very interesting about the names of the men appointed. Did you notice? Verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, you might not know this automatically because names in our day, they're just kind of names. We don't, we don't really think about where they come from much. But if you had been a Jew in Jerusalem when the deacons were appointed, because that's what these seven would come to be called, you could not have missed what happened. You see, all the names of the ones appointed are Greek names, not Jewish names. And it appears that Nicholas might not even have been ethnically Jewish because he was a convert to Judaism from Antioch. You have to realize this is a very radical act to put apostle-acknowledged authority into the hands of Hellenized Jews. I wonder how many saw this as an act of compromising the faith. But here's the point. The Holy Spirit plays by Holy Spirit rules, not our rules. Therefore, it is never our job to tell the Holy Spirit what can and can't happen, even if we think we have a pretty good lineup of Bible verses that backs our view. 
Rather, our job is to discern what the Spirit is doing and then get in line with the Spirit's work. Acts 10 is a classic example of this, and we'll take up that story on November 4. It seems the Holy Spirit was about to take the lead again in the early church, for you see, to date, it had primarily been the twelve who were the teachers, and everyone else were the learners. But for what God had in mind, that wasn't going to work anymore. You see, the twelve just couldn't be everywhere that God needed a witness. And in fact, there were some places where God needed witnesses where someone else could be even more effective than one of the twelve. I take you back to verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now watch what happens, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Suddenly, it seems the Holy Spirit has more in mind for these so-called deacons than just distributing food. What do you think would have happened if the twelve had been jealous of Stephen at this point and begrudged him and sought to make him get back into the sphere he was appointed to. What are you doing doing signs and wonders? That's our job. You get back there and wait on tables. Don't tell me that never happens. Receive this as a cautionary maxim. As most of you know, the rest of the story of Stephen, never be jealous of another's calling, for you might not actually want to do all that God has called them to do. Instead, let us all trust that the Holy Spirit will lead each of us to the course of witness especially prepared just for us. I don't need to bear your witness. I need to bear mine. Back to the text, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So what exactly is happening here? With the unleashing of Stephen, suddenly a powerful witness to the story of Jesus has begun to reach, with a new level of effectiveness, a community of Greek-speaking Jews from prominent cities all over the empire. Stephen is taking the gospel places that Peter couldn't. The point, yes, God can, by the Spirit, enable men or women to speak other languages in order to spread the gospel. I mean, Acts 2 is exactly that story. However, it seems that God's favorite way of spreading the story of Jesus is by making missionaries and witnesses of all nationalities and then sending those converted witnesses back to the people who are like them. It's called decentralization, orchestrated and overseen by the Holy Spirit. 
The text says the Spirit gave Stephen wisdom as he spoke, and his opponents could not withstand him. So what did his opponents do? Well, they did the same thing that they did to Jesus. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. That's pretty much the exact same charge, isn't it? Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So put yourself in Stephen's spot. All of a sudden, they're telling lies about you. They come and grab you. They drag you in front of the Sanhedrin, the very group that condemned Jesus to death. And you're standing there now. Does this frighten you? Did it frighten Stephen? Well, I'll I'll let you decide. Acts 6, verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Yeah, I don't think he was scared. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And now what follows is the perfect example of why we must trust the Holy Spirit. For the speech Stephen is about to give is the speech Stephen was born to give. And the speech that Stephen alone could give by the power of the Holy Spirit within him. Peter couldn't make this speech. Paul couldn't make this speech. Stephen was called for this day. He was not appointed for the twelve. Their days would come. This day was the day when Stephen would be the witness And the Holy Spirit was with him from the beginning to the end. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. To this, Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. Okay, so Stephen begins his comments by referencing the call of Abraham, establishing firmly the foundational reality that the faith of Israel is a called-out faith, a faith where the believer must believe that God can speak and must be willing to act when God speaks, just like Abraham heard God speak and acted when he heard God's voice. Verse 6. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. 
Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. It's interesting that he mentions the covenant of circumcision here because that's going to become a crisis just a little later on that the Holy Spirit's going to have to lead them through as well. But back to his speech. So far, Stephen has spoken of the patriarchs as they have trusted God. But in a moment, he will introduce how disobedience runs deep in this family. Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. It's the disobedience. But now watch how Stephen includes God's overruling the people and vindicating the one that the people turn against. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So, all right, let's realize where we are now and what Stephen's doing. Stephen has introduced Abraham as being faithful to the leading of God, and then through Joseph has now placed Israel in Egypt, and now he's going to introduce Moses. Because you remember, at the heart of the charge against him is that he's blaspheming against Moses. Verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When, when he was placed outside, now he doesn't tell a cute little story about a little boat floating in the bulrushes and Pharaoh's daughter and everything. He kind of makes it sound like they really put him out to die. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided, decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Now watch what happens here. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Do you see what Stephen has just done here? He's shown that all the way back in the story of Moses, that even back in Egypt, the children of Israel were always slow to recognize the deliverers that God sent them. This is going to become very important when he gets to his conclusion. Verse 26, the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? 
But, now notice what he points out. But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Do you notice which detail of this story that you'll find in Exodus 2 that Stephen brings out? He brings out that it was the abuser, the mistreater, was the one who was pushing the deliverer aside. Verse 29, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. So, so here's what Stephen's doing. In his story, he's taken Moses to the burning bush and now connected him with the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses is connected with those who hear the voice of the Lord and obey and do what the Lord requires. Abraham heard the Lord and went into the land. Jacob came down to Egypt with Joseph. And now Moses is about to be sent back by the voice of the Lord to the land of Egypt. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. All right, so far, this has been a rather lengthy telling of the story of Israel. But in truth, Stephen has pretty well gotten to the end of the story that he wants to tell. And things are about to accelerate towards his conclusion. Remember, they have accused Stephen of blaspheming Moses and God. Well, Stephen is about to turn this around on him. Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And it was at this moment that I wonder how many of them in the room started to think, I think I know where this guy's going. A ruler and a deliverer sent by God that was rejected. Hmm. Verse 36. Moses led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Hmm. Someone chosen by God, sent as a deliverer, who performed wonders and signs. Then comes a quick foreshadowing as Stephen begins to build towards his conclusion. Verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Any guesses who Stephen might be referring to? Moses was in the assembly in the, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us, verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. 
They brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their own hands had made and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. All right, now he's leaping forward. He's going to bring this history of disobedience, this history of rejecting those that God sends. He's going to bring it forward. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. He's taken him out of Egypt, into the story, into the exile. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, and now he's speaking to those who are fixated on the temple as the place of God, he says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So Stephen has made his case. He's pointed out how God has reached out to them from the time of Abraham with the purpose of delivering them, but how they have misunderstood and rejected God time after time after time. And now Stephen will bring his message home and bring the ultimate charge against them. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors, and here's the charge. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And now comes the witness to the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You remember how I said that? That the Spirit comes upon us and He makes us witnesses to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Well, here it comes. The testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the comment that will seal Stephen's doom. Verse 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It was more than they could bear. And in response to the words by which Stephen sealed his doom in this present life, most in the room that day sealed their doom for eternity. But not all would be lost. There was at least one who witnessed the witness of Stephen that day, who would himself be converted eventually, who would himself become a witness. Verse 57 
at this. Now, these are the dignified guys. Understand what's happening here. These are the dignified guys. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So do you think Stephen was dejected and defeated at this moment? I don't think so. I think he was not defeated and that he, like Jesus on the cross, had not lost his faith, nor had he lost his love for his fellow Jews. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He hasn't lost his faith. Verse 60, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's not lost his love. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So what happened to Stephen when the Holy Spirit came upon him? My answer, he became in a very short time one of the brightest lights ever to burn for Jesus. A light so bright, we still see it in its brightness today. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he became a witness. In fact, we refer to him today in Christian circles as the first witness, even though we don't realize that's what we're saying. You see, in Greek, the word for witness is martus, or plural, marturus. It is from this word that we get our word martyr, one who dies for their faith. And what do we call Stephen? The first martyr. So based on this story, what do we become when the Holy Spirit comes upon us? Jesus said, Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my martyrs. that a little more than maybe you were bargaining for? Maybe that's why the Holy Spirit doesn't very often fall upon us in power. We don't really want to be martyrs. I joined this church to make my life better, not to make myself a martyr. Well, maybe you joined for the wrong reason. Luke 9, verse 23 then Jesus said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. You will be my martyrs, my witnesses. Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others... I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So ask yourself the question again. What would I become if the Holy Spirit fell upon me? Could we become martyrs?
Could we be his witnesses? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see the light of your witness burning bright before us. One who stood faithfully for you, who was filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know not what our path will be, but we pray that your Spirit will come upon us in power, that we might be your martyrs. In Jesus' name, amen.